Well, we want to welcome you to Plum Creek Chapel this morning. Great to see everybody here. We are uh, excited about the continuation of our study. You know, I was driving in this morning and uh, listening to some songs on the radio, and one of them, I don't even remember who was singing it, but it was called One Day, and it was just talking about how one day all is going to be made better and how encouraging that is, and that's what I love about studying the millennium is that it just really speaks of a better day that's coming. And, um, you know, I was talking to Dean before the service here just a minute ago, and he had sent a video of a, a really neat video of a, a dog, a family dog and a deer that somehow struck up a friendship that lasted years. And that deer lived in the wild, but he would always come back to the family's backyard and the dog and he would play together like two dogs or lay, lay down together, one's head on the other's belly, and just, uh, just a neat story. And I thought, in a way, that's a picture of... The millennium, because, um, you know, at least with our dogs, when the deer come on our property, they go bananas. And if they weren't restrained by a fence, they would go chasing after those deer. We might never see them again. But this picture of this dog and this deer just in harmony, just to me, is a microcosm of what life is going to be like in the kingdom. So we're continuing our study of uh, what lies ahead. Um, as you can see, we've been doing this for quite some time now. We started many, many months ago, more than a year ago, with a look at, uh, you know, why should we study Bible prophecy? Uh, what's the next great event in God's plan of the ages? We talked about the rapture and the different views on the rapture. Uh, all of this is uh, in uh, my book, What Lies Ahead, which if you don't have, feel free to pick one up from the table in the lobby. Uh, if you're watching this online, either by live stream or in a video or listening to the podcast, you can always check out uh, notbyworks.org uh, and get the book there. And I haven't mentioned this in a while, but uh, we still have that coupon code for that we started at the beginning of this series just to help people if, that wanted to get the book uh, get it a little cheaper. If you put in WLA, all caps, WLA for What Lies Ahead, uh, it'll be 25% off on that. Uh, so just a couple of announcements. It's been a busy week. Uh, we did uh, the Stand Up for the Truth radio interview on the coming One World System, How Close Are We? That was Tuesday. The uh, podcast is still available. Uh, you can just, wherever you listen to podcasts, to check it out at the Not By Works channel or go to notbyworks.org and click on podcast. But I encourage you to listen to that. David and I had a great discussion, hour-long interview of uh, really answering the question, how close are we? You know, a lot of things are coming together very rapidly, economically, politically, geopolitically. And uh, so we kind of tossed that question around. I think you'll find that encouraging. And then also on Tuesday, same day, we did our Standing Tuesday interview on the Christian Underground News Network. And we talked about somewhat related to the timing of God's end times plan, and that is the rising tide of apostasy. And we talked about signs of apostasy in the church today. And uh, I listed, I think, five or six, and we talked about them uh, at length. So I encourage you to check both of those podcasts out. And then Wednesday night, we are now two sessions in to our summer <coughs> series, What is Calvinism and Is It Biblical? And it has just been a joy to me to be able to talk with you guys about that. And uh, the discussion has been really encouraging and energized and I'm getting lots of great feedback. <clears throat> it's also obviously piqued an interest uh, in the community at large, the, the online community, because our live streams have shot up from what they had been in our previous series. Um, not quite to the level they were when we did What in the World's Going On uh, last, last summer, I guess it was, uh, but still very encouraging that people have an interest in this and I'm getting bombarded with emails and uh, voicemails. I got one voicemail on the 1-800 number this week. Didn't even leave their name. Just started right in. So you're an Arminian and blah, 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 blah. And I said, I didn't even respond, but I felt like saying, well, you obviously didn't watch the series if you think I'm an Arminian. But anyway, um, and then uh, we got, uh, I can't please everybody. I got one person that emailed me uh, just yesterday. In fact, it was late last night. I didn't get it till this morning or didn't see it till this morning. And uh, they said, uh, you're too, you're too, you're too soft on those Calvinists. You need to be harder. So you know, I can't win. Either I'm, either I'm not hard enough, or I'm too hard, or I'm too mean, or I'm too. I'm just trying to say, what does the Bible say about these issues? So uh, anyway, I hope you'll come out on Wednesday nights. 
at uh, 6 o'clock Mountain Time right here at the church. If not, you can certainly live stream it or watch it at your leisure uh, a little bit later. We, in last announcement, we do have uh, the venue set for the upcoming Elbert County Stands Up event. They're going to uh, be holding that at Majestic View Church in Kiowa, and that is uh, Sunday, June 26th, so three weeks from today at 2 o'clock Mountain Time. Uh, don't know yet whether we'll live stream, and I'm going to do my best to live stream, and it depends on connectivity at the venue. Uh, but either way, we'll record it, and hopefully those of you local here in the Denver metro area can come out and join us in person. Uh, it's at 2 o'clock, plenty of time to come to church and then grab a bite to eat and then head out there for that event. The topic is the Great Satanic Reset, what to know and how to prepare. That's what they've asked me to, to speak about. So with that, let's talk about uh, a brighter day ahead. We're looking at characteristics of the millennium. And um, just to put this in uh, context, of course, everything you see in yellow is what will come after the return of Christ. Uh, someone asked me the other day, why do they call it the second coming when there's also a rapture, which is a coming? Well, it's a good question, but there's a very simple answer to it. Historically and biblically, when we refer to the first coming or first advent of Christ and the second coming or second advent of Christ, we're talking about the two times in human history when Christ comes all the way to the earth, takes up residence for a purpose in God's plan. The first time he came to the earth, he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, uh, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, ministered for roughly three and a half years, and, uh, and then, of course, went to the cross to pay our penalty for sins, rose from the dead, and then ascended back to the right hand of the throne of God. The next time he comes all the way to the earth will be to establish this kingdom uh, that we're uh, talking about uh, right now in this uh, series, and he'll rule and reign in perfect peace and justice over an entire global kingdom. Uh, so as I've said many times, biblically, we are absolutely unquestionably headed towards a one-world government. It will be ruled at least for the first seven years by, the, well, for the first, well, it will be ruled for seven years by the Antichrist prior to the return of Christ. We could also be in that one-world satanically-led system prior to the uh, establishment of the, the Antichrist and the tribulation. But certainly the first phase of the one-world system will be satanically-led. And then at the end of the tribulation, Christ comes back and the Bible comes full circle uh, to God's uh, kingdom age when Christ rules and reigns on earth. But uh, as regards to the rapture, again, back to the question, well, how come the rapture isn't considered a, a third coming or something like that? Well, at the rapture, Christ doesn't come to the earth. The rapture is a rescue. Christ is going to rescue the church from this present evil age, Galatians 1.4. We're going to meet the Lord where? In the air. And, uh, and, and that's why Jesus said in the upper room in John 14 that if I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come again that, and to, to take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Well, where is Christ? He's in heaven. He didn't say that where you are, I may come also. He said that where I am, you may be also. So the rapture is totally unique. It's a mystery in Scripture. Paul calls the rapture itself a mystery in 1 Corinthians 15. It's something previously undisclosed, and it is not part of the God's plan with Israel and the coming kingdom. So we call it the first advent, the second advent, the first coming and the second coming when he comes to the earth. The rapture is unique, and, and we uh, have talked about this previously, the clear distinctions uh, between the rapture and the second coming. So great question, and uh, sometimes when I get questions that are outside of our regular meeting that I think are really encouraging and edifying that would help be helpful, I like to bring them up. So feel free, those of you who may be listening online, email me questions uh, anytime, and I'll either, I'll always respond directly, but I may also, uh, you know, talk about it on the, uh, in, in the session. All right, so we've talked about geographical characteristics of the millennium. Uh, as you see on the screen there, I won't take the time to read them because we've kind of reviewed them briefly for the last several weeks. Uh, there are seven of them. And then we moved into social characteristics of the kingdom. And you see some of those on the screen there. Again, there are seven of those. And then right now we're in the midst of looking at some spiritual characteristics of the kingdom. And last week we talked about uh, the revival of the sacrificial system. We talked about the restoration of the Sabbath and ritual feasts. And then we left off with uh, number six there on the screen, perfect obedience by believers under the new covenant. And uh, that was a, a fantastic 
discussion last week, and we talked a lot about the nature of the New Covenant, the biblical texts related to the New Covenant, how that relates to the present church age. So if you didn't catch that one, please go back and uh, get caught up and listen or watch that one from last week. Uh, and this, so this morning, our final spiritual characteristic of the millennium that we want to talk about is the fact that Satan will be bound during this seven-year period, which means there will be no widespread spiritual deception. Now, before we look at the primary text for that, let me clarify what I mean by that. Obviously, even during the millennium, as we've talked about, there will be a people born. Obviously, by the time a thousand years is up, there will be an innumerable population on the earth because it's people are going to live longer. There won't be sickness or disease. There won't be uh, injustices or accidental death and things like that. But there will also, by the end of the millennium, be a huge contingent of unbelievers because everyone born, as always, according to Ephesians 2.1, is born dead in their trespasses and sins. They need to trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone as their only hope for salvation. Some will, some won't. So during that period of time, there will still be unbelievers and there will still be sin on the part of unbelievers. Uh, but it will be judged uh, swiftly and accurately. We won't have uh, all of this uh, injustices where innocent people are being convicted. You know, there's a ton of uh, uh, documentaries right now, it seems like over the last several years, uh, basically telling the tales of people who spent years in prison, some of them on death row, for crimes they didn't commit. Uh, now that DNA is available and things like that, we're learning about corrupt uh, DAs, corrupt coroners, uh, paid-off juries, all kinds of things that are just one more example of the depravity of man. Um, so uh, even though our criminal justice system is probably about as good as it can get, given the fallen nature of man, it is by no means just. <laughs> there are serious problems uh, with our, uh, ju quote, justice system. Uh, you won't have that during the millennium. Uh, Satan's going to be bound, but that doesn't mean he's utterly powerless, okay? Uh, so let's look at Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years uh, in uh, the abyss, the bottomless pit. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Uh, but after these things, he must be released for a little while, John tells us. So the, Jeremiah tells us the heart of man is desperately wicked. Again, we're born uh, spiritually dead. And we're talking about what that means on Wednesday nights. We're in the middle of our discussion of total depravity and what the Bible says about that. Um, I really can't wait for Wednesday. Can we just fast forward to Wednesday? That would be great. Uh, but uh, but so, so there's still going to be, uh, you know, sin and people will still be resistant to the gospel, but it will be much less profound than it is today. Remember, this present age is called the great last days of deception. In fact, I wrote a book with that title. Um, and we talk, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.13, how in this present age, evil men and imposters are getting worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Uh, Jesus uh, talks about during the seven years immediately prior to his return, uh, that, that deception will reach unprecedented heights. He cautions the future nation of Israel repeatedly to be on guard against deception. But it'll be a different uh, case during the, the millennium. You won't have that level of deception. It basically, as we've talked about before, the millennium provides an opportunity for fallen mankind in the most ideal conditions where they have really, all of the excuses are taken away and nobody can, can you know, of course, already, according to Romans 1, all the excuses are taken away, but still, people use excuses. That's what my book, Top Ten Reasons People Go to Hell, is about. It talks about, you know, ten different common reasons that people reject the free gift of salvation. Um, but it, and it's things like, you know, tragedy, heartache, bitterness. Uh, you know, people will shake their fists at heaven and say, why God? And it causes them to turn their back on God. And so, but it, you won't have those things. There will be no tragic deaths, no loss of a children, um, no uh, experiences like 
what we sent out the prayer request uh, earlier or a couple days ago, and it's on our prayer list today, uh, the experience of some very dear friends of our family uh, down in Houston, who uh, the grandfather and four of his grandsons were murdered by an escaped prisoner from Huntsville. And very long, we've known the family for over 40 years, um, and just, uh, you know, really close, close friends, and just tragic. The guy, one of the grandsons graduated from college, he and his two brothers and their cousin went with the grandfather to their ranch in Centerville, probably just hanging out, and enjoying a few days of R&R, maybe shoot some quail or whatever, and this guy escapes from prison, a twice murderer, uh, and a mafia guy, and is on the run, hides out on their property, and comes across them and kills them. I mean, how could that happen? Right. So many questions, by the way. That whole story has, there's whole, so much more to that story has to be than what we're being told. But, you know, you won't have that kind of thing in the millennium. So nobody can, can really say, why God? And yet, as we read at the end of uh, Revelation 20, uh, by the time the thousand years is up, when Satan is released, he will have no shortage of army members to gather to his side to come against Christ for one final battle. And so, uh, so, so in the millennium, you will see no widespread spiritual deception. Any questions about that before we move on to our last section about characteristics of the millennium? Yeah, Suzanne. Um, Why, why does Satan have to be released for a little while? Well, he has to be destroyed. So he not not like cease to exist. He's got to face. I know. Why doesn't he do it today? Right. I mean, I don't know why we just can't call this meeting to order and take a vote and say, you know, all in favor, send the guy to the eternal lake of fire where he shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Uh, but God is sovereign. God has a plan. Um, I think a big part of that plan is what I just talked about, uh, you know, basically demonstrating that just as Adam and Eve chose to sin, you know. Uh, by the way, I've got some powerful quotes Wednesday that I've been working on and putting together new stuff that I've just come across that will blow you away at what some Calvinists are saying today, like John Piper, for example. John Piper says, God created evil. God is the author of evil, quote, unquote, <laughs> And it's power. It's a it's a very disturbing quote. So I'll tease you with that to come to come Wednesday. But um, yeah, I mean Suzanne, I'm, I'm right there with you. I I, uh, I don't understand the mind of God. I don't understand um, except that some of the clues that He gives us in His Word, like God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance, and God wants all men to be saved. Maybe His long arm of mercy is just uh, prevailing right now in spite of the evil. Um, but uh, I think someday it'll make sense, I mean, when we get to heaven. But I would you know, absolutely wish that it would come to an end right now. But uh, we have to walk by faith and not by sight. We have to walk in grace. We're going to be talking about that in the second service today. And uh, recognize that we live in a fallen world, and for reasons known only to God, we're going we're gonna to trust Him. And recognize, as Paul said a couple different places, that you know, essentially, the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us, Romans 8. So, uh, so yeah, um, any other questions about uh, these spiritual characteristics? All right, so then we see what I'm just calling other characteristics that kind of put them in their own category here. The first one, which we've touched on in very, coming out from various different angles, is predominant righteousness. Um, when we talked about the New Covenant last week, I, I showed you from Scripture how when the New Covenant is inaugurated at the Second Coming, uh, the Spirit of God, God will cause people to walk in obedience to Him. And that's why I referenced that article that I wrote about uh, death in the millennium and sin in the millennium and those kinds of things. Um, so because of that, there will be predominant righteousness. Now, as I said, eventually, and in, in, in the in comparison to the full thousand years, it'll be very much at the front end because you figure at the beginning of the millennium, as we've talked about, let me go back and put up that uh, chart. At the beginning of the millennium, the only people who will, who will step into the kingdom in their physical bodies will be believers, right? Because all obviously raptured believers that were raptured roughly seven years earlier 
have already got their glorified bodies. Tribulation saints that died will get their glorified bodies at the second coming. Old Testament saints like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and the like, Joshua, they will get their glorified bodies at the second coming. But there will be a group of people who have believed the gospel that survived the tribulation in their physical bodies, and they are the ones to whom Jesus says, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. So if you picture Christ coming back on the Mount of Olives to establish the kingdom, the Battle of Armageddon takes place, he destroys the Antichrist and false prophets, sends them to the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then the kingdom commences. Uh, and when it commences, those believers that survived the, the tribulation will be the ones that populate the earth. Um, all unbelievers at that moment are cast into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25. So the only people on earth capable of reproduction are believers at that moment. That's plain enough in Scripture. Uh, there's only two categories when Christ comes back, sheep and goats. The sheep, he says, come right on in. The goats, he says, adios, enjoy the torment. I mean, I'm being sarcastic, but that's, that's the biblical record, right? So, but obviously, over time, they will procreate and there will be children. So if you figure the millennium is a thousand years, at the beginning, you know, I would say, let's just say nine months later, you start having kids, and then over the next six, seven, eight years, those kids are old enough to really understand intellectually the gospel and understand, you know, those things. And so if you look at the thousand years, within certainly the first ten years, you're starting to see a population of dirty, rotten, filthy sinners, <laughs> some of whom have not been born again. So by the time you get to the end, you've got, you've got quite a few. So, but as a percentage of the whole you're going to have uh, far more righteousness than what we have today. So the Bible is really, uh, God's plan of the ages is really kind of coming full circle. So that at Christ's first, I mean, at his second coming, uh, you know, you had uh, the vast majority of people were unbelievers, and there's the remnant principle. This is what I believe Jesus is talking about in the parables of the kingdom with the mustard seed. It's going to start small. But by the end of the thousand years, it will just blossom into this massive uh, kingdom. So whereas in the present church age, the church represents the remnant, right? Uh, and uh, we are by far in the minority. And, I mean, we know that, right? We especially are beginning to know that uh, as we see our country unraveling, you know. I mean, you might argue that back in the good old days, right, uh, were, there, were there ever really any good old days in America? I don't know. Uh, watch my recent presentation in Tulsa on the uh, whose fingerprints are on the founding of America, and maybe that'll give you some insight. But, um, but you know, let's just say from a conventional perspective, in the you know 40s or 50s, there was a predominant biblical worldview. Uh, you know, I get that liberalism was creeping in, the denominations were falling away, all that. But by and large, you just didn't have the in-your-face prevailing, pervasive immorality and sin that we have today. So people would maybe have the mis mistaken impression as they look at America relative to, say, communist uh, Soviet Union at that time or other pagan cultures, uh, that we were a majority, that we were, you know, we were better than that. Uh, I would argue that we've all, the Christians have always been a remnant throughout the 2,000-year church age. But you see that remnant principle really from the beginning of time. You know, it was a remnant principle in the days of Noah. Uh, it was a remnant principle in even in the Exodus, right? Um, and because only the, the, none, nobody really from the original, except for uh, Joshua and Caleb, from the original Exodus community went into the Promised Land. So there's always this remnant principle. Well, that's going to kind of flip in the kingdom when Christ is reigning on the throne. So that, you know, the good guys, if we want to, characterize it that way, will be in control and, and in the majority, you know, uh, and then, but there will still be a strong contingent of unbelievers that will team up with Satan when he's released for that final battle. Does that make sense? So it's kind of a flip-flop, um, you know, uh, so, so predominant righteousness, a couple of passages, Isaiah says, a highway shall be there and a road and it shall be called the highway of holiness. Can you think of any street 
in America today that would be appropriately named the Highway of Holiness? I can't. I have a lengthy list that would be appropriately called Highway of Hell, but nothing Highway of Holiness, right? Uh, the unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. Or Zephaniah, the remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies. This again corresponds perfectly with Ezekiel 36 that we looked at last week and Jeremiah 31. Um, whereas today in the present church age, the Spirit of God permanently indwells all believers, seals us, uh, baptizes us into the body of Christ. He does not force us to obey. We have to walk in the Spirit, not after the flesh. The two are contrary to one another. There's this battle. And if the, by the way, if, if it didn't exist... We'd all be perfect, right? If the Spirit of God is all we had, and we don't have the old man, we'd all be perfect. But clearly, there's a struggle, right? Sometimes, as Paul describes in Romans 7, we don't do the things we know we should, or we do the things we know we shouldn't. Um, but that's not going to be true in the kingdom. Nor shall, <clears throat> nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, where they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. So predominant righteousness and the further we go into the kingdom, the more we see the restoration of the Edenic conditions. Edenic, obviously referring to Eden prior to the fall. Uh, and we're going to see uh, a return to that. For example, Isaiah 65, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. I mean, can you imagine such a thing? Um, I mean, there are all kinds of animals that graze together. You know, we on our way to church, not far from our uh, neighborhood, uh, uh, which is out in the Black Forest, we have we pass a big field of rancher that has that raises sheep and goats, and they're often out there together. And one time I saw him out there separating him. I wanted to stop and ask him if his name was Jesus, but I wasn't sure he <laughs> wasn't sure if he would get the reference. But um, but anyway, okay, sheep and goats, fine, they graze together, right? Cows, cattle, horses, you know those kind of things. I'm not a rancher, so I may you know, can't elaborate too accurately but I've certainly never seen a wolf and a lamb grazing in the same field have you not peacefully uh, the lion shall eat straw like the ox the dust shall be the serpent's food they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains says the Lord so that's the way it was uh, in the garden yeah Great question. So how do we know that's not after the millennium into the eternal state? If you go back and read Isaiah 65, there are some textual markers that delineate when he's talking about the realm of the millennium and time, space, and matter, and when he's talking about the eternal state when time shall be no more. Uh, and I actually uh, wrote a, a paper on that years ago called New Heavens and New Earth, and I show in Hebrew the sort of the the bookends um, of, of that section that make it clear textually that he's now shifted and he's talking about beyond the millennium. So, yeah, so if you, anybody would like that, just email me and I'll send it to you. It's uh, le fairly lengthy, but it, I think it'll be uh, insightful. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, we may have discussed this relationship of all of the uh, folks that were raptured and have their glorified bodies both in the seven years prior and in the millennium in regards to the impending conflicts. So are the do the people with their glorified bodies kind of sit off to the side and don't participate in the in the battle scenarios or because just wondering if there's any feeling about if, if this is just a mortal thing, the battle part, because think about it, I mean, the, the mortal, uh, you have winners and losers, and the losers die. Yeah, so uh, the question is, and by the way, for those of you that are live streaming or, or, or watching the video or listening to the podcast later, I know that often when we're doing Q&A, it sounds like there's this awkward pause no other way really to do it uh, unless we somehow have a microphone with a runner that goes up to everybody. That's just not practical in our situation. So thanks for your patience. Just know that 
while it's maybe awkward for you, it's not awkward for us in the room because people can generally hear the comments, and I'll always try to repeat the comments as best I can. Sometimes I forget, but generally uh, I don't. So the question here is, uh, what's going on with the, those in their glorified bodies during the tribulation, namely the church, uh, and in the millennium, which would be all believers from all ages that have died, um, and how do they, what role do they play in some of these earthly things like the Battle of Armageddon, I assume you referenced, and the uh, ultimate battle uh, at the end of the millennium? Well, we, first of all, I wouldn't characterize those battles as strictly mortal, especially Armageddon, because the tribulation very much has a spiritual demonic component. Demons are agents of Satan and the Antichrist doing their bidding and harnessing powers and, and things. So it's not strictly speaking mortal, but more to the specific question about the role of the glorified saints. You know, there's a lot we don't know. We know that in the kingdom, the church anyway, is going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. Not everyone, because the right to rule is connected to your life of faithfulness in this present age. And as uh, Luke 19 tells us, some people, Jesus said, uh, who didn't really do much with their Christian life will get into the kingdom and enjoy the blessings of the kingdom, but they won't be put in a position of authority in the kingdom. But others, such as the disciples, uh, who paid the ultimate sacrifice with martyrdom, he says, you'll sit with me on 12 thrones, ruling and reigning. So uh, we know that much, that, that we're going to be certainly interacting, playing a role in the day-to-day -day affairs of the kingdom. Um, off the top of my head, I can't... Uh, bring to mind passages that speak directly to our role in the battle. Uh, remember, the um, end of the millennium references Gog and Magog, Gog the leader, Magog the land. Uh, that's not the same event, even though it's the same geographic players, as what Ezekiel prophesied about in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Sometimes people see Gog and Magog and assume it's the same thing, but it's not, uh, any more than if you see a reference to China today in two separate contexts, you're thinking those things are happening together, right? I mean, it's the same people, but different time frame. Um, so I'm just, I'm not really sure, yeah, I would imagine we play a role of some sort, either leadership or, or who knows, uh, but certainly there will be angelic and demonic components and, uh, and earthly components to that battle. Beyond that, we have to just kind of let the scripture speak where it speaks, so. Wait and see, that's right. Or wait and watch, yeah. as the case hopefully. may be. Yeah, hopefully, yeah. So, um, I mean, I don't know. If God wants to enlist you, you're not going to be able to go to Canada. You're just going to have to but, sign yeah, up, you I know. Was I was thinking that if, uh, if, the, if all the church saints were to participate, we certainly stack the deck. Well, um, uh, yeah, he, the comment was if all the church saints were to participate, it would certainly stack the deck, at, be, at the risk of being too facetious, I'd say the deck's pretty much already stacked because yeah. the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and God the Son is in charge. And so uh, it's a losing proposition for Satan from the beginning, right? He just doesn't believe it. He's just slow learner, and he, he knows the Bible better than, uh, than we do, but he just doesn't believe it, right? He, he thinks he's God's wrong and God's lying. So um, Then we see... Uh, Al Gore will be really excited. Unfortunately, he probably won't be in the kingdom. But anyway, uh, removal of harmful environmental effects, right? Uh, you know, uh, John Kerry now is kind of the, the front man for the whole environmentalist uh, climate change movement. Uh, he's basically camped out at Davos in Switzerland, uh, very buddy-buddy with uh, Schwab, Klaus Schwab. Um, and, uh, you know, they... I think all of that's a misdirection. I get into that in my book, uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, in the chapter on geoengineering. You know, I think uh, it's never about what it's about. It's the Hegelian dialectic, problem, reaction, solution. They're using this climate change as a pretext for the geoengineering that's going on, many of the other uh, economic taxes and uh, things. Uh, it's multifaceted. But the reality is there are harmful environmental things today. In fact, as is often the case, the very thing that the globalists and the Luciferians claim is to help the environment or save the environment from global warming is actually harming it. I mean, that's quintessential Luciferian globalists. They, 
you know, whatever they say they're doing, you can almost always say it's just the opposite. You know, take this vaccine, it'll save you. No, it'll kill you. That's pretty clear now, you know. Um, so uh, I want to be clear that there are clearly, as a result of the curse of sin on creation, harmful environmental effects, and very bad people are actually doing bad things to make it even worse. Uh, but that doesn't mean we subscribe to the, the lie of, of climate change and global warming and this kind of thing. Um, and, and, and ultimately, as has often been said by conservative uh, dispensational uh, scholars, uh, we do believe in global warming because the Bible is clear that he's going to burn up this earth and destroy it. First time by water, second time completely destroy it by fire and then recreate it in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21, in, per, in sinless perfection. So, I mean, in a manner of speaking, they're, 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 they're right. There's going to be global warming, but not in the manner that they uh, think. It'll be a judgment of the creator. Um, but in the kingdom, we'll see that paused or, or protected. Uh, Isaiah says, The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. So think about that word picture the next time you see some commentator, you know, showing you drought-stricken areas of Africa where the ground is parched and cracking and these animals with their rib cages showing, or which most of that's, you know, fabricated, but, uh, but some of it's not. And, and you see that, think about the fact that someday when Christ comes back, it won't be that way. We will see a removal of the harmful environmental effects. So the next time they show you a poor polar bear, you know, in, you know, on this iceberg drifting away, and just remember that it won't always, it won't always be that way. Um, restoration of longevity. Uh, we've touched on this before, but in Isaiah 65, it reminds us that uh, a child. Who, or a person who dies at 100 years old will be considered a child, right? Um, so, you know, again, the Bible is coming full circle. Right now, because of the curse of sin, and because Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, and so forth, we've seen, if you look over the last 6,000 years, it goes from people right after creation living to be eight, 900 years old, to now the average lifespan is, what, 80 or something. But that's going to shift back, when you think about no accidental death, no, you know, believers certainly aren't going to die. Uh, we're going to have no tragedies, those, those kinds of things. So this is what Isaiah is saying there. Did you have a question? No? Uh, yeah, you, I'm sorry. Yeah, I thought you, I thought you, and I was really excited because I thought she looks brilliant. I bet this is going to be a brilliant question. <laughs> Back to the. Oh, the no vaccine, yeah. Yeah, there'll be no vaccine. Yeah, good point. Yeah, so there'll be many th reasons that people will live longer. Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm glad I did because it was kind of fun. So, but, uh, uh, but um, so any questions then about this restoration of longevity? You can see how over a thousand years, I'm not saying necessarily right out of the chute, but as the kingdom goes on and, and the, the earth is restored from all the devastation of Armageddon and the temple is rebuilt and all these things and Christ is on the throne, you're going to see a totally different scenario than what you see today. Right? Okay, and then number five, we'll see an increase in daylight. Okay, and this is the one, I know I've only got five minutes left here, but this is the one I was really looking forward to talking about last week because I, I kind of took this and ran with it in my, in my preparation time. But let's first look at one of the key passages, Isaiah 30, Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days, and the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and heals the stroke of their wounds. So clearly talking about the day of the Lord when he comes back, establishes the kingdom, rules as the long-awaited Messiah on the throne. But what, what we need to understand is that darkness has always been a symbol of evil in Scripture. And you know, I hate darkness. I really do. I, 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 you know, I don't like walking into rooms that are dark. I have trouble seeing. I've always, even going back to my childhood, just, just not been the kind of kid that loved to play around outside at night. 
you know, and it got dark. I put up the baseball and the glove and the basketball or whatever I was playing with out in the yard, and I would come in. And, of course, in some cases, I'd go to the basement and keep playing, but, uh, but there were lights. I just don't like darkness. Um, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, darkness is, a, is symbolic of evil. And you see that again and again. For example, in Ephesians, Paul says, speaking to believers, you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. He goes on, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. You know, there's a reason that most crimes happen at night. Now, again, the further we get into this horrific, depraved age of the church, uh, where Satan is the prince, and the closer we get to the rapture and the end times events, the more anything goes. I mean, now there's just blatant in your face and wide open in the public, you know, crimes and sins. But clearly, in general, you know, thieves don't make a plan to rob your house at noon while you're sitting down at lunch, you know. They want to watch and see and do it at night when you're not home and it's dark, you know, that kind of thing. That's why security experts say one of the best things you can do is have plenty of light, you know. If a, if a criminal is walking down the street and he's got one house without exterior lights all lit up and hard, going to be hard for them to get on the property without being seen, and the next house is all dark, you know, and you can't see anything, that's who they're going to pick to, to go rob. Ephesians 6 refers to this spiritual aspect of our battle this way. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the what? Darkness of this age, right? Uh, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. In Colossians, I love this verse, he has delivered us from the power of darkness, talking about those who've placed their faith in Christ, and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Now, we understand that kingdom ultimately, and most of the time in Scripture, refers to the literal, earthly, messianic kingdom of Christ. But some of the folks from our dispensational understanding of Scripture, the literal, grammatical, historical understanding of Scripture, just have a real chip on their shoulder and hang up about the term kingdom. Uh, well, here's an example where we are in the kingdom now. We've been conveyed to that kingdom. That's not a, 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 you know, a slight against literal premillennial understanding of Scripture. It's just we need to be fair and recognize, yeah, there are a few passages where kingdom is used in a broader sense. Ultimately, God is in control of the entire kingdom, but most of the time in the Scriptures when we see a reference to the kingdom, it's referring to that narrowly focused time of Christ taking the throne in the rebuilt temple and ruling with a rod of iron. But remember, we've been transferred in out of the power of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. First Thessalonians 5, a passage I talk about a lot in my a new book, Spirit of the Antichrist, you are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of the night nor of the darkness. Again, using darkness there as a metaphor for evil. Or Peter puts it this way, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who what? Called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right? And then 1 John, talking about fellowship okay, for believers, says this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So you can't be claimed to, walking in, to be walking in fellowship with the Lord and, and walking in darkness at the same time. When you're sinning as a believer, you've stepped out of fellowship with him and you're walking in darkness. Oh, was that a stretch or a hand? Okay, just making sure. Uh, and then same thing, 1 John 2, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Isn't that great to know the darkness is passing away? Um, I don't know if I have this verse. If I do, I'll just repeat it when I get there. But Paul says, uh, we are to shine like stars in this perverse generation. So that's what John means when he says the light's already shining. To the extent that we're walking by faith, not by sight, living for Christ, following the Spirit, producing fruit of the Spirit, we are making this world a brighter place, right? Um, in 2 Peter, he's talking about unbelieving false teachers. And he says, someday, uh, these are those for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. That's part of the torment. And again, that's not 
God sending them there, everyone, even false teachers, has the same opportunity to believe the gospel. Whosoever will, let him come. The Bible ends with the universal call. Uh, Whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely. So nobody can blame God if they haven't trusted in Christ. It's like he's offering the gift. If you don't take it, that's not on him. But nevertheless, for those, and we read about this in the great white throne judgment, uh, it's going to be blackness of darkness forever. In the tribulation period, which we've been talking a lot about in this series, when we see the bowl judgments at the very end, right prior to the battle of Armageddon, the fifth bowl is uh, his kingdom will become full of darkness, talking about the Antichrist. Okay. Uh, the bowl of judgment is poured out on the throne of the beast, the Antichrist, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. But by contrast, after Armageddon, after the millennium, we get into the eternal state, as Kelly referenced earlier, uh, after the old earth has been destroyed. And what do we read? There shall be no night there. So that'll be thrilling. Now, those of you that kind of like the night, you know, which, I mean, there's some sporting reasons to like the night. I get all that. Well, get ready, because there's not going to be any night in the eternal state. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So we'll stop there. We've got a couple more other characteristics that I want to talk about. Uh, but any questions or closing comments about anything we've talked about so far? Yeah. I have one about the one this. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. So, okay, I need to repeat the question. I just caught myself. I'm trying to find that where we talked about longevity of life. Is that the one? Yes. Well, now I can't find it. Anyway, uh, oh, there it is. Restoration of longevity, number four. So the question is... Uh, Am I talking about in the millennium that when I talked about people living eight, nine hundred years, and then what was the rest of your question? We'll make it right to the end of the millennium. So that does that mean that most people will make it will live throughout the entire millennium is essentially what we're asking. So a couple of things. First of all, uh, I mentioned last week that based on my comparison of scripture with scripture and more of a theological conclusion rather than a this verse says, uh, I don't believe believers will die in the kingdom. So a good portion, uh, I think those that get saved in the kingdom uh, are immediately under the new covenant and they will be translated in the same way that, uh, see, we, we, normally we get our glorified body by resurrection, right? But there is a group that we know of for sure in scripture that won't have to experience the resurrection and that is raptured believers. And 1 Corinthians 15 describes it as a translation, not a resurrection. Remember, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, The dead in Christ will rise first, the resurrection to get their glorified bodies. They're already in heaven to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord, but their bodies will be resurrected from the grave or wherever their atoms have you know, disintegrated to. Uh, and then it says, Then we who are alive, without ever having experienced death at the rapture, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15 that we then experience a translation. He says, we shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed uh, because this mortal cannot put on immortality, this, this corruptible cannot put on, uh, you know, this corruptible puts on corrupt, incorruptible and so forth. A flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, basically. So there's a translation. So we know that precedent is there. It's a theological supposition that because it, it seems clear enough, as, at least as I study scripture, that believers won't die and that ultimately after the millennium when the earth is destroyed and we enter the new heavens and new earth, they've got to have their glorified bodies, that they too must experience a translation. But now back to your question. So assuming believers don't die, you know, that's, yeah, of course they'll survive the whole thousand years. But what about unbelievers? I think that, again, in general, even they will have longer lives but they will be also part of the sinful aspect of the millennium. They could both be sinning and also the uh, recipients of sinful behavior, murder, for example, things like that. So 
yes, in general, all human beings will live longer. Uh, and, uh, and yes, I believe believers, especially those who start out in the kingdom, will live the entire length of the millennium, in my view. Yeah, yeah sure. I want my kidney back. Um, so the question is uh, relative to the resurrection of the of the believer's body. Uh, if you've donated, you know, part of your physical body to uh, the donor system, and someone gets your heart or your lung or whatever uh, or kidney uh, at the resurrection, will that part be resurrected? Um, that's a good question as it relates to the rapture because it has implications for the person left, if they're an unbeliever who's left behind. But we do know that, um, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, this physical body, even if it's lost at sea or burned up in cremation or physically in a, in a coffin embalmed in the, in the ground, that wherever the physical atoms are, they will be reconstituted somehow to form our glorified body. Um, I, I would say if your, if your organs that are dispersed abroad <laughs> uh, are in people who are dead, then it wouldn't, I wouldn't have a problem conceptually understanding that, yeah, those atoms that constitute your body would go too. But uh, the other thing is I think there's a distinction between sort of the flesh and bone and the organs in a, in a way. You know, that really our body is what you can see, and it's our framework, uh, and that's what's going to be reconstituted. Uh, you know, I recently had an emergency appendectomy. I have no idea where that appendix ended up, uh, probably in a biohazard waste pail in the hospital, right? I'm not so sure that part of me needs to be reconstituted and glorified. Um, but these are all, you know, good questions that, you know, all, we just have to try to make sense of the theology of it all so all right well we are over time so we'll stop here thank you guys uh, very much we'll uh, uh, take a break those of you here in the church uh, we'll start our worship service at about 10 mountain time those of you live streaming remember we only live stream the message and so we will start the, the live stream at roughly you know 10 25 to 10 35 depending on how the service flows but we will be back with you shortly. Thanks.